Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Mark, how are you, mate? Hey, James, how's it going? Great, man. Yeah, it's going good. You know, we were just saying off air, like we've been doing this thing now for five months approaching. I know. I can't believe it. I can't believe it's gone so fast. And I mean, it's a weekly, a weekly show and we've been doing it for five months, which means we've had almost 20 people on the show. We're quite similarly built by temp- in temperament in some ways, me and you. Yeah. And I think we both came into the meditation game on some level originally with that type A edge yeah. and hearing so many people say, Whoa, windows of tolerance, guys. Seriously. How funny, hey? Because, okay, so maybe it's a little bit selection bias, but I don't think so. I don't think you and I are particularly like looking for speakers who are going to be toting that line about contemplative training. You know, we, we cast a wide net. We're, we're inviting everybody that you and I would like to talk to. And that's not just people who are talking about safe practice or something. And yet it seems to me basically every week, we're having something about this sort of right practice and safe practice come up. So that's really interesting. I mean, I think it, I think it says something maybe about the zeitgeist of mindfulness practice today. I mean, there was a kind of big explosion, maybe, maybe here's one way to think about it. There was a kind of big explosion of interest. People got really, really ardent. You know, there are some voices that are really pitching, you know, a lot of ardency with these kinds of trainings. And maybe there was a kind of inevitable backlash because, well, I'm not sure, probably for lots of reasons. And I think researchers are really, for one reason or another, from lots of field, are catching on to some of the things that can go wrong in practice and then really starting to emphasize some of the ways that you can be protective in this thing. Yeah, because you hit every wall. If you come at this thing with fire, and so many people do, eventually people run into the similar kind of problem. And the various researchers and teachers are hearing the same kinds of issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's not surprising at all, right? You have basically a research agenda, which is to look at the benefits of contemplative training. Now, that's already, we should be a bit suspicious, right? That you're not like bringing your bias into the study. And I think more and more, we're starting to see a balanced academic engagement with these ideas. But I think originally there was a kind of bias, maybe not a strong bias, but there was already the idea, like, let's look at the benefits. So now you're getting these, you're getting this research paradigm that we really believe in neuroscience, psychology, you know, psychiatry, and they're going, wow, meditation is good for this and this and this. It keeps you young. It keeps you balanced, keeps you wise, makes you intelligent, makes you a better worker. No wonder people are going going, wow, it's a kind of panchea. I should invest a lot of time into this thing, although they don't maybe have the right supports or the right teachers or the right understanding. And so they're just practicing at a high level because the research said, hey, this stuff is awesome. Go, baby, go. One question I have for you is you worked with Kula Dasa, John Yates. Yeah. And he, for those who haven't run, ran into him, was a neuroscientist, wasn't he? Once upon a time as his primary gig. He wasn't a neuroscientist by profession. He did lots of things, but he was a kind of neuroscience aficionado or like a neuroscience dilettante. You know, he was a he was a very serious he was a very serious hobbyist, and it came into a lot of the things that he was teaching. He wrote this book called The Mind's Illuminated. Now, The Mind's Illuminated is my introduction to formal meditation, and it's a brilliant book in some ways. Like the process of meditation can be very confusing at the start, which is a lot of what we've chatted about. It breaks it down for a certain kind of personality beautifully but it's also like this thick big book and it's if you're the type of character who goes away and revises you know all the details 
it's ripe for that. How do you see the mind illuminated and Kuladasa and that kind of mechanical meditation training more generally? Yeah, it's really good. I mean, it's a really interesting question. So the mind illuminated as a practice manual, I think is fantastic. I think it's fantastic because it, I think it fills a gap that we need filled in the sort of mindfulness community, which is a really technical and progressive outlining of how the skills and abilities that maybe one is trying to develop while they're learning to mature contemplative abilities, you know, the book lays it out in a really progressive way, one thing at a time, which is great. But the potential problem is, is that it really does hook. I like to say that I'm a recovering type A personality. I don't know how well I'm doing in my recovery, but uh, it really hooks that kind of personality because again, it's very technical and there's lots to do. So it's sort of funny, you know, the book, like even from the beginning, for anybody who's listening, if you haven't found the book, um, it's really fantastic. And you'll see like right from the very beginning, it's telling you to be cool, be easy, be soft, allow, let come, let pass. I mean, it has all that language right up front. But because it's set up as steps here, building on traditional stepwise models of development of concentration and awareness training. So here we have 10 sort of stages because it's set up as steps, more or less people immediately start thinking up is better, faster is better, further is better. And then you even start saying to people, well, I'm on stage six. Well, you're only on stage four. You're only a lowly stage four. When in fact, that's not at all the way that the book is sort of set up to be used. You know, it's supposed to be cyclical. These are like 10 different territories you can end up in. Of course, you're gonna go to those territories lots of different times. And then the skills and ability suggestions, the training for the specific skills and abilities that the, that the chapter suggests is just one way that when you find yourself in that territory, you might make good use of that territory. But it's so quick to be overlooked that. So, I mean, if you go on the Reddit forums for the Mind Illuminate, I think people are making this mistake all the time. No, it's so true. And in some ways, teaching anything runs into this problem. The truth is you're working as a teacher, as he is here. You're working in the context of the psychology of the students. And on one level, you can account for that by writing what he does up front, you know, go soft, go slow. But you can't ultimately account for the psychology of the students beyond saying, these are the common problems you might run into given the way this book is written. Yeah. We've written it this way for a reason. But I remember having a huge frustration having been on step four, but couldn't budge. And it wasn't like, okay, well, maybe I just need to develop some of these things. Let, let's give it six months, see how it goes. No, no, no. It was like sit by sit analysis. I want to budge. Now, that was not because of the technique. That was because, and I hope this comes through, I was bringing my energy to it in a way that like, if you had asked me and I was just giving you the candid answer or what I thought was the candid answer, was what I was trying to get out of. I was saying, well, listen, like, it's really important. I get through the stages as quickly as I can so I can stop being worried about getting through the stages. <laughs> I completely, I completely hear you. I mean, I guess thing, two things come to mind. One, you know, I think that's really shared experience. I think lots of people feel like that. They come to these training programs because they're trying to get out of something. And even you can read the core texts for lots of these kinds of trainings and they look like they're sort of escapist opportunities, you know, like getting out of samsara or getting out of suffering, bringing an end to suffering. And while that might be true, you can't practice like that in, you know, at least you're told by the sort of teachers in the tradition, you're not supposed to practice like that even when you get into it because you can create all these sort of blocks for yourself. You know, like if you're busy trying to get the mind to be something, yeah, you might you might just be enforcing it in a way. Kind of like, you know, don't think of the elephant, you know, stop thinking about elephants. And as soon as you say that, all you can think about is elephants. Rather than allowing the methodology of 
cooling out concentration and learning more about yourself and learning to be self-curious and curious about suffering, curious about the sources of your own happiness and letting that do the work. I mean, that's all the curiosity project. It's not a striving, we better get out of here mentality. It's more like a, you're sitting down as an opportunity to learn a little bit about yourself. And in fact, it's through that learning that you get better when, as you get better evidence about what you actually are or how the world actually is or closer to how you actually are, closer to how the world actually is. You get better on the way, but you don't aim at getting better. You aim at knowing more and then in knowing more, you get better. And the truth is there's no, like so much of life has this character, right? Like if you go on the dates, and you're like, I must be uber impressive, as opposed to just, I want to engage in the date. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, 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 think about it. You know, go on a date and you're like, you're like, okay, I know how a date's supposed to progress and I want to get there as fast as possible, you know? So I'm going to like force the line. So like, wh what does a date look like? Well, you introduce yourself, you tell each other things about yourselves, good night kiss, you know, end up at home with the person. Okay, now how do we get there as fast as that's lost. I mean, the total pathological way to think about dating. It's the same thing for the gym. Like you might lay out what a program of health looks like in terms of muscle development, but the aim shouldn't be to do that as fast as possible. The aim should be to show up with each part because, you know, the best laid plans and all that, they're going to change as you change. And there's going to be days where you're going to have to press less. And there's going to be days when you press more and you know, I have a practical tip to just riff off what you were saying there. Don't make it your main mission either. I find meditation is a very strange game to make your main project at the moment, because then you can't help but map it to progress. Whether today was a good day or a bad day, tracks the quality of my attentional abilities, puts a pressure on it that's very ironically unlikely to help your concentrational abilities. Yeah, there's lots there. One is, I think you're you're pointing out in part a concern that I have as well. And I think lots of our guests over the last five months have had, which is there seems to be an unfortunate tendency to extract these mental, emotional training programs out of their natural context, whether that's a cultural context, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a cultural context, I don't think, but from a wider context of where they fit and what they're for. And that's already slightly problematic. Like if the aim is to just have powerful concentration, but that powerful concentration isn't being used to actually make your life any better. That's a really funny thing to, I mean, it's fine, but it would be like, I'm going to make a really big right bicep. <laughs> that's all I'm going to do. And it's not because I want to pick things up. <laughs> I just want to be able to be like, look how big my right bicep is. And it becomes completely dysfunctional. It doesn't work with the rest of the body. I mean, if you extract any one thing out and then you lose what it's for, probably already, at least in my opinion, you're, you're, you should be suspicious of, of making that your whole thing. But I just want to say, like, if you put it in the right context, like, you know, a good starting context is to live a good human life, maybe. Mm. To know who you are, to know what this life is all about, and to let that knowledge of who you are and what life is support a, a kind of thriving, a flourishing here. To use these practices to change, like Janusz Wellen said, one of our guests, to change your relationship with suffering so that you digest it more easily. And to really discover where persistent, lasting joy is, if there is such a thing. Like, if that's the aim, 
that's the only aim I'm interested in, tell you the truth. I mean, that's what I wake up on and I go to bed on. And my career as an academic and as a lecturer is as close as I can get it to being right on that thing, you know, so that I'm doing research on this. I'm speaking about this. That really is my whole life. But the concentration training can't be the whole thing. But I think being a good human can, is really a wholesome activity to make the whole thing. In fact, I think it's the best way I suspect it's the best way to live because if that's your biggest aim and then everything else are sub aims, one very interesting thing happens, which is you can't have a bad practice and you can't have a bad day because bad practices and bad days are just all opportunities to learn more about who you are, learn more about life and in learning about that, learn how to flourish, you know? And if you were to assess this as a philosophical argument, one thing you would say is, well, it includes the relevant pieces of information. Like it's important you have a social life, a familial life, a vocational life, a physical life, a sexual life, a psychological life. You need the model to include things that are evidently important to us. And as soon as you go all concentration training, you miss that because now all of a sudden there's too many competing variables. Like, should I be listening to music while I should be following the breath while I'm walking around? Yeah, and like, I don't know, you are a really complex ecosystem, you know? Mm. Like you are an ecosystem of mental, emotional, perceptual, behavioral dynamics. You're, really, you're a really interesting, really complex, really rich sort of ecosystem. It would be weird to think that training one of our myriad abilities is going to be so favored over the others and think that there's going to be a positive outcome. Rather, I think we need to be asking ourselves more and more. And I like this both in the cultural context. I think we get a lot from the traditional teachings, but I think it's cool that science is starting to investigate. And I would like to see this program keep going, you know, like not only what are the benefits of this one skill set, but how does that one skill set permeate and percolate into all of the other things that you do in life? And maybe, you know, I think we're just at the edge of starting that research, but I think it's a really worthwhile research paradigm. Like, for instance, I'm hoping the thing that I'm really interested in over this next year is I'd like to turn my research focus to loving kindness practices, to really look at kindness, the practices of kindness. Because like cross-culturally, we have so many practices that are meant to engender different qualities that are related to kindness, empathy and compassion and sympathy. And there's lots of research about how are these different and how do they play into the rest of our life and where can they go wrong? Yeah, I'd like to see more and more. And when are they right to pursue and in what quantities? There was a time in my life where if I had a financial problem, I've gone to meditate, which is the wrong answer. The answer is go speak to a financial advisor. And like that detail, right? Unless you're approaching this in the way you're suggesting one approaches it, you can make that mistake. No, dude, of course you're stressed about your finances. Go sort it out in the relevant realm because the big aim, the big aim is to live a wholesome, flourishing life. And it's obvious how having decent, sound finances play in. And the problem is we get sticky and tight about enlightenment, the self. And all of a sudden, we just miss the point. So I have to ask you then, like, if you had kids, right? Oh, if and when you have kids, and they're 15 years old, and they're being a total teenager, where do you see on this journey of wholesomeness, being a good human, where do you see the role in that case of spiritual practice? Jeez, I don't know. Rearing children is innately challenging and 
completely confusing endeavor, you know, like, when, like when should you teach your children anything? I have, I have no idea. I barely know when to learn things myself, let alone how I would transmit them to somebody else like that. But yeah, I mean, if you're talking about being a good human, I guess always it's a good thing to have on the docket, just in different ways. Michael Stone, one of my favorite Canadian yoga teacher, he passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. He used to teach mindfulness to all sorts of people in really interesting ways. And I think I read on one of his blog series, he was teaching kids about interconnectedness. This is one of the fundamental insights in Buddhism, right? Learning about interconnectedness, really closely related with emptiness, because no one thing stands by itself. It's empty of inherent nature. And he would get them to go out and sit by a tree. And then he would say, okay, now identify the parts for me. And then the kids would say, well, there's roots and there's a trunk and there's branches and there's leaves. And then he'd like, okay, like now let's look really close. Like, where does the root start? Like, where is there just a root all by itself? And you can't really, you can't really see the difference between the root and the soil. It's really permeable, you know? And then he'd say, well, where do the roots end and the trunk starts? Like, where exactly is that? It's a really challenging thing to see. You say, well, where do the trunk turn into branches? Where do they turn into leaves? I just think it's such a cool way to teach young people. Like, look, you've got these concepts and they're useful because you can say, hey, the cat's in the branches instead of, hey, the cat's in the roots. Those are very different problems, you yeah. know, that need to be tackled in different ways. But that's only relatively true. Flick the lens up one level. And it's more challenging to know where those parts are. And that's a, that's a cool lesson. I think you can learn very early on that things are more complex than you make them out to be. Story time. I decided at the end of my third year of university, we're going on retreats. I booked a retreat I knew nothing about. It turns out to be like 15 hours a day. I don't know if this will be controversial because I think lots of people have their own opinions about this thing. But um, I'm increasingly suspicious of this retreat fad that we have going on right now. Like as a cognitive scientist now and looking more at some of the underlying mechanisms that are altering some of the ways that we can powerfully through neuroplasticity and persistence and control of our attention and attention turns out to be so important for the cognitive system. Like all of the ways that we can reprogram, reformat and alter our own perceptual, behavioral, emotional, cognitive landscapes. It's a really potent, powerful thing. The more that I'm engaged with that research the more suspicious I am of this style. How come? Well, because I don't think you should do anything for 15 hours a day that's cognitively alien, with no prep, with poor understanding, with little support, and outside of the context of somebody to help you integrate those things after the fact. I just think that's a bad idea. I think it's a bad idea across the board for anything that makes you go into a weird cognitive state from no time to 15 hours a day of time. Like thinking back now, because like I was sort of the paradigmatic hard hitting meditator when I first started this 22 years ago, I did lots of long retreats. The longer, the better, the more radical, the better months and months at a time, living for years in different countries. Just to add some color, what's the longest you spent out somewhere in a retreat context? Six months, but lots of those. You know, I did two years in Thailand and two years in India going in and out of retreat situations, sitting with lots of teachers. Okay, so I did all of that. So I know the ins and outs. And of course, there's, of course there can be huge benefits, but there are also huge detriments and lots of, lots of problems that then need to be addressed and updated because you're just throwing yourself wholesale into things that, at least for me, I was thankfully 
because my type A personality, thank God I was semi-protected by it because I was with, I did have good teachers and I did have good friends and I had people that I could stay in touch with. But like this idea that like people come to me and say, oh, I want to do a Vipassana retreat, which by what they mean is a 10 day Gwenkaji style retreat, you know, where should I go? And you ask like, okay, well, what's your practice like now? And they say, oh, I do headspace 10 minutes every couple of days. I think like, I mean, this is the controversial point. I bet other people are going to have other opinions. They're going to think retreats are always good, but I just can't, I just can't fathom giving anybody that advice now. It would be like for me, like going on a long ayahuasca retreat where you're doing ayahuasca 15 hours a day for 10 days in a row. And then you just expect only positive outcomes. I just think like, <laughs> you don't want to do you don't want to do this to your, to your poor mind. You know, your mind is such a, is such a delicate, I mean, it's robust in lots of ways, but it's such a delicate ecosystem of processes. And you're just going to like bang in there and like bend it in one way without really knowing what you're doing. And then hope for the best seems insane to me. The best way I think to do retreats, if you're interested in retreats is you get into a progressive training program you spend months or however long it takes to grow up your practice and to understand how the practice works. And you let that all happen organically from the bottom up. And then when you feel like you can't go any farther without going into a more exclusive environment, that seems like the right time for going on a retreat. We wouldn't do this anywhere else in our lives. No, it's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's totally nuts. And I think it's two things. It's one, it's we're making money because people are, this is a hot thing. So you can charge a ton of money for these retreats. That's one thing. And two, because it's extreme. You're going to have peak experiences one way or the other. That's kind of attractive for people who are like looking for highs. You know, you get to have these altered states. But again, that's a big miss. You're not aiming for altered states. Like even in, you know, even in the Buddhist contemplative training program, you're not aiming for altered states. You're not. You're looking for transformation, whole perception transformation. But that's not, it's very different from peak experiences. There's more gray area. There's more complexity. It's more personalized. The paradigms aren't competing, but they sort of coexist and they depend. There's so much more gray and the grayer it gets, the less extreme action makes sense, I think, is the takeaway. I completely hear that, man, and I completely agree. So here's the good and the bad. We have all of these opportunities today. We have books translated that were never meant to be in the hands of practitioners that didn't know anything about the tradition. You know, like we've got a copious amount of information. We have teachers from every tradition teaching full-time, non-stop, and we can get their videos online, we can get their books, we can go on retreats of every ilk. If you have a little bit of access, you can basically sit with any teacher. So you get this huge board but that doesn't necessarily tell you what you should do and when you should do it. You know, that's all gray. And so maybe that's the takeaway. You know, you get all of this access, but we have to be a little bit more careful about what we're making use of. And I think again there, it would be great to have some good friends. You know, people, older brothers and sisters who have already been a little bit on the path of becoming, um, you know, good and serviceable humans that you can check in with and you can ask questions of. And then, so that's one thing is maybe to have somebody to talk to about these complexities, these gray areas. And maybe the second thing is, is to get this right view. And I love this view that's coming up in our program, which is this view of let's do it progressively. Let's be slow. Let's look for evidence. And just to jump on the point about good friends, the truth is you need to bump your head against every wall. 
So it's not a problem to take it too seriously at the start. We should get some radical people in here this next stint. Let's get some people in who really push for monasticism so that we can uh, we can push back against some of these ideas. You know, find some, find some heavy duty retreat leaders and see what they say. And it would be also mm -hmm. great to get on some guests who are only working with long-term monastics to see what some of the trait changes are, beneficial trait changes that might come from these more radical, in-depth, long-term practices. That would be a great to sort of offset our first third, which tended to have this softer quality. Maybe it'd be cool to sort of ramp it up and see what some of the other voices are saying. Yeah, because Olympic divers, for example, are kind of separate to the general population and what works for them. And it might yeah. well turn out that there's a segment of the population who are effectively Olympic divers. Right. And what works for them, we're, like, we're talking a different language though. Like Yeah, 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 exactly. Where being soft is actually a countermeasure for them. That what you want is a kind of increased dedication if you want these sort, sort of certain traits to emerge. Yeah, exactly. But then you just have to be real about like the fact that 99.5%, 9% of people, that's not what most people don't want to be Olympic divers. And you know, like everything we've said doesn't exclude that. It mm. just says that you should be open and awake to what's right for you. And if it does progress in the way, and I really believe this, you know, if it naturally progresses in the way where a sort of monasticism and full-time dedication, Olympic-style engagement makes sense, then all the power to you. But hopefully, if you've started off soft and awake, then you'll built in the kind of structures that are needed so that when that time comes, you're safe and you're ready for those deeper dives. Mark, thank you so much, man. Yeah. What a great catch-up. I really look forward to like our kind of next, our next catch-up for another series of episodes. Brilliant. Well, listen, this has been Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin. And as always, we'll see you next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 